Previously on Drinks with Tony. I'm Gabriella Herstic. The, the prodigal daughter. I don't have a radio <laughs> voice. She knew what to do. The earth is starting to wake up. Jack Kerouac. He's such a witch. What is this? Pop punk. Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. John Steinbeck. I love yeah. him. Yeah. I'm so glad I get to see him before he dies. Frankenstein. Uh, what is it that would make you say that? Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was Gabriella Herstic from last week's episode of Drinks with Tony. Listen to all the episodes of Drinks with Tony when you have time. And remember, save the whales. On this week's episode, we have author Jim Ruland. And on our second segment, Marky Ramone of the Ramones. Thanks for listening. Uh, hey, this is Marky Ramone, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Enjoy the show. This is Jim Ruland, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Sounds all official at first, and then we just chat. All right. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Jim Rulin. He is the author of Forest of Fortune and co-author of My Damage with Keith Morris, who was lead singer of Black Flag and Circle Jerk, so much other stuff. Jim, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. I'm glad we connected because you live in San Diego, and I'm in L.A., and that's a hard thing to do. Yeah, well, um, I'm up here a lot, quite a bit. You know, uh, a lot of the work I do is based in L.A., and so I love coming here. Yeah. yeah you're working on a book now with Bad Religion, yeah? That's right. Um, uh, I hesitate to say I'm getting near the end because that's the kiss of death, right? You know, but, uh, but yeah, I'm closing in on uh, finishing a draft of a book with Bad Religion about their legacy and their history as a band, and uh, it's been amazing talking to punk rockers for the last two years. Yeah, so what's that process like to take someone else like I mean when you're working with Bad Religion are you working with like a bunch of you're working with all the members not just one and one specifically and then how to compile that into a narrative well uh, that's correct I'm, I'm working with the whole band and I'm talking to people past and present anyone who will talk to me uh, Bad Religion is kind of like a Spinal Tap situation in that they've been through a astonishing number of drummers over the years uh, they've only had to kick one member out and I, I won't I won't de I'll decline to say who that is right now save that for the book but uh, but yeah I've talked to a lot of people and um, so how, how did you connect with bad religion what was the idea for putting a book together do they approach you and go hey dude man the one you did with Keith Morris rocked let's go or that was kind of it yeah yeah they were uh, they were looking for an, they wanted to write a book um, at different stages in Bad Religion's career, they had thought about it. Uh, Greg Graffin, the singer, is also a, an academic and he's published two books that are a mix of uh, science and memoir. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is called Anarchy Evolution and the other one's Population Wars. So he talks about the, the things that he's passionate about, which is science, uh, and in a way they kind of read like lectures because he relates them to like where he lives and past experiences and there's there's some early band history in there too. I wish I knew more about Bad Religion. I love the name and then for some odd reason they didn't end up on my radar until like the last three years where I'm just like, oh, um, what was that one song? Uh, if this is, if this is, you no know, something heaven, this is hell. It's one of the, is that, <laughs> I'm sounding like the, sounding like the worst punk rocker in the world. 
Um, <laughs> I think it's off their first record. I had it in heavy rotation for a while. <laughs> yeah, uh, fuck Armageddon, this is hell. Yes, exactly. That's it, that's it. That means so much to me because I grew up scared of Armageddon as a kid because I grew up in that weird Jehovah's Witness stuff. So when when it's, when it's that when I heard that song, I'm like, oh man, this would have been my anthem like if I knew it. You know? Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating song. It's kind of uh, the anthem of their first album, How Could Hell Be Any Worse? And when they're, by religion, they're kind of like the last of the OG punks in that they formed in 1980 when they were all high schoolers in, in, uh, in the Valley. And Greg was 15 and Brett was uh, 18 or 17 when he wrote that, they wrote that song. And uh, so it's pretty incredible that like they're still around and Everyone I've talked to about this project, they'll they'll say, oh, they have like that one song or one that one album or one experience where they intersect, and then they're fans for a while, and then they move on like we all do. And uh, but Bad Religion has this astonishing 38-year career, and almost nobody knows the whole story except the really hardcore fans. And so it's it's been it's been a really fast and me me included. When I got into the project, uh, I didn't really know what I was into. I knew there was a huge catalog, and I was a little, little more than a little intimidated by that. But um, it's been a great process. I wish I was that forward thinking at 15 to write amazing music like that. Yeah, well, like uh, in 1980, it was kind of the rise of the moral majority and like the whole evangelical. Uh, movement and so it, their name was a reaction against that but the, the kind of music they played was it was punk rock it was it was melodic hardcore and the kind of music they've become known for now is a little bit more it's the same format but maybe a little bit you know more bigger hooks and things like that but in that first album how could hell be any worse I mean, you can really see the um, their influences in like uh, you know, Black Flag and the Circle Jerks in terms of the intensity, uh, germs in, in terms of their forward-thinking lyrics, and really, in, they're all really intelligent guys, which is what sets them apart, I think. And also the harmonies of bands like the Adolescents. So, like, if you were a punk fan in '80, like listening to Rodney Bingheimer's, you know, Rodney on the Rock show, uh, Bad Religion just like hit all your buttons because it was a band that was influenced by L.A. punk, you know, not English punk or New York punk. That's intriguing. Are you from Southern California? Did you grow up? No, I grew up, I was born in New York and grew up in the D.C. area. My, I come from a Navy family, so I moved around a lot. And it was the Navy that brought me out to California. Oh, wow. So you were, when you were growing up, you were near like the whole D.C. punk scene that was happening? Or were you, were you around that? I was, and I missed it. Yeah. The entire thing. Yeah. Um, it, it's really kind of funny in, uh, well, as you may or may not know, uh, one of the guitar players for Bad Religion is Brian Baker, who is the founding bass player for, for Minor Threat. Oh, wow. And, uh, and so when I met with him for the first time and I told him like, yeah, I'm from, I grew up in Falls Church, Virginia, I went to high school there and I could just like sense him like, please don't tell me that you were there, you know, like he, cause he wouldn't say anything, he's a very cagey guy, but he was just waiting for me to say, yeah, and I was at these shows, because it would have been a lie, he would have known it, because it was like a really small scene, it was like, an, oh, so you would have known. Oh, he would, oh yeah, would, I mean, the people who were there are all known, you know, it's like you can't, it's like any scene, everybody knows each other, so, uh, 
So no, I was I was a kid in Catholic high school, and I was the oldest in a pretty strict military family. And as punk as I got when I was like, let's say, you know, I did go see the Ramones. My mom took me to see the Ramones, <laughs> but uh, but basically my punk was like listening to bands on my on my people's drug knockoff Walkman while delivering newspapers. I listened to Devo and the Ramones. Pat Benatar and surf punks. So it's just a weird mix of bands. Um, and then, so when when did you when did you find punk rock? Was it when you moved to uh, California, or? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm through some of my shipmates. You know, different people were into like, you know, it was mainly through drugs that I met people. But I met, you know, I met a skinhead. I met a guy who was into Bauhaus. I met a speed metal guy, and that they all kind of came together with the bands that I should listen to and. Uh, and would you know feed me different things you know like I, I didn't even know who Metallica was when I uh, enlisted in the Navy in 1986 so uh, it, I, I learned a lot from my shipmates and uh, I remember I was in Ocean Beach um, at you know this guy's apartment and he's like oh you might like this and he puts on uh, you know the Minor Threat record and I turn it over and it's like the mailing address is in Arlington, you know, Virginia, where the Discord house is. And I went to high school in Arlington, and I was like, "How is this possible? How did I miss this?" That's a trip. So, um, so they, um, you were doing. You mentioned like doing drugs when you were in the Navy. Is that was that kind of a when you were active in the military? There was a there was a lot of drug use. I guess I'm asking. Oh yeah, well, like there's a lot of drug use everywhere, but um, it's in the military then there was uh, I worked in deck division. So I, to back up a little bit, I, I was uh, in the Navy Reserves. I signed up for six years, and it was a college program. So that meant I had to do two years of active duty, which is pretty unusual for a reserve program. So I was the first two years I was just like a regular active duty sailor, and uh, and then I did reserves while I was in college. And uh, part of the deal was is that like because they were like we're going to help pay for you to go to college, you can't join the military, and so you have to test well to get into the program because it's a college program. But you then can't say, okay, I'm going to go to sub school or nuke school or any school really, because then you could spend as many as two years in in your active duty just going to school. So I had to go right to the fleet. So. Um, and when you go into the fleet, when you go into deck division like I did, which is like the non-rates, you know, there's people chipping paint and doing stuff like that, there's a lot of turnover. Because these are most of the people that you're in these divisions with are people who don't qualify for schools or are not United States citizens and can't go to like nuclear sub-school, you know, for example. So there's a lot of drugs, there's a lot of turnover. And um, I met a fast, you know, if you go like one of my shipmates had gotten kicked out of the Naval Academy. And there he was. He still he signed the paperwork. He still has to do his duty, so he, he was in the fleet with the rest of us. So um, I I kind of figured out like, hey, we get drug tested a lot, so I'm not going to smoke any marijuana. I wasn't really into pills or anything like that. It was mostly speed that people would do because it just would keep you up, it would get out of your system fast, and you know make the days go by faster. The um. You know what scares me if I ever had to join the military was boot camp. I just, I, I think I would be the guy, I would be the Vince D'Onofrio boot camp. I don't know if, uh, <laughs> I don't know, did you have to go through boot camp? 
I did. Yeah. But, um, I, you know, after growing up in a military family, Tony, and being in Catholic school and wearing a uniform for 12 years, I was a square peg in a square hole. I mean, I like I like to think of myself as this anti-authoritarian punk rock kid, right? But I fit in like a key in a lock. I got it. I knew what was expected of me. So I was always someone who like fulfilled my duties like the first time and without having to be told twice and being dependable in that way. So then people would look past me to the, the people who were generally clueless and fucking up. So when I got to the fleet, I was like the, one of the hardest workers on the, on the ship, but it's just a terror on the beach. So when you're on the fleet, were you stuck there for two years or did they bump you up to do other stuff when you were? Well, no, I was like, once you're in there, then it's up to you. It's, your, it's like your own destiny. And, and then once you're in the military, it really is a meritocracy in the sense that like you can make the most of it and, and move up. No matter what fleet you're in or what division you are, everything is constantly changing. The people around you, the people up, the people you're with. So there's endless opportunities for advancement. I only had two years, so I didn't want to advance into like some another division that was maybe cooler because then I would be the low man in the totem pole there again. So I just stayed. I, uh, I became a... I went from E1 to E4 and became a... Uh, uh, petty officer, third class bosun mate, and um, and the bosun mate kind of does all the stuff in the on the ship that you kind of would think a sailor would do. We steer the ship and do the lookouts and do small boat operations and all the nautical shit. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like the a fun part of the military to be in. You probably picked it right because you probably knew that about all the like different branches of the military and were really familiar. I'm just throwing words in your mouth. Tell me I'm wrong. Yeah, you, you kind of are, but you're kind of saying what I probably thought when I was eight. Because you know, I'm 18. I don't know shit about shit. Like, I wouldn't have joined the military if I'd known that there was a tanker war between Iran and Iraq going on. And I don't know why my parents thought it was a good idea to let me join the military when that was happening. Because I got to my. I got sent to San Diego, and we were supposed to go to, to the Persian Gulf. And on our way to Hawaii, um, the USS Stark was hit by an, um, an Iraqi jet pilot and put two missiles in the side and killed 37 sailors and nearly sank the boat. And you know, Iraq was our, you know, allies at the time. So um, that they changed our whole operation then they said no we're not sending any more ships to the gulf so because we were already underway we got a, we spent most of our time in cruising around japan and the philippines and the hong kong and korea and australia we we had a great time but um but yeah they were we were supposed to be in the persian gulf man that's um is, is there a part of that sometimes where you think uh it's just like you, you feel bad for the, I don't, I don't know, like a survivor guilt kind of thing? or I, 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 I do. I, I have a tattoo right here that has the date of the Stark oh, when wow. it got hit, yeah. May 17th, because uh, when, when I was young, I didn't really under I didn't really appreciate that. I was like, oh, you know, I didn't believe the people that told us that we were going into a war zone, and then, we you know, the captain comes on the 1MC, which is the, ship, the ship-wide announcing system, and says... Uh, we are now going into wartime cruising. You're just like, 
holy shit, you know. I, I remember I was sitting on the, the flight deck watching the sunset, listening to Jane's Addiction, their first album, and uh, when we got the announcement. And then, um, so, and then how, uh, when do you leave the military? It's, how does that work, or the Navy? Well, I was in for six years. Like I said, two years was active duty. Um, so um, when I got to, I was in San Diego, and uh, you know, we literally went all over the world. When we came back, I went back to Virginia, where um, I had signed up. And that's where I could qualify for in-state tuition. And because my Navy benefits only went so far, so I went back to Virginia to go to college. Yeah. And then you came back out here to Paradise. Is that the plan? Yeah, yeah. As soon as I got done, I'm like, I, fuck this. I'm going back to California. You know. I forgot to mention in the intro, you also do Vermin on the Mound. How long have you been doing that for? Uh, almost 15 years now. Yeah, pretty, inc- pretty incredible. Uh, um, it's just kind of like a, you know, a fun thing to do. People say, wow, you've been doing that so long. It's so much work, but. It, I just tell people like it's not like running a literary magazine or a website. It's you know, it's nothing like that. So, and ours is also very. It's it's always been irreverent and irregular. So it's kind of quarterly. Sometimes we have them in L.A. Sometimes in San Diego. Sometimes both. Sometimes neither. It's just you know, it's not the most efficient way to run a reading series. But everyone kind of feels like we're doing it for the first time and the last time. Well, and it, it, plus it's been running for 15 years. So it, I mean, I, I'm very aware of it when I came to L.A. It's like, oh, Vermin on the Mount. It's like one of the, one of the bigger reading series. As, as far as I, it, even though I haven't been to one, which is terrible to me, because I, I know you've had my book show and stuff. I've tried to go, but I think I had other crap going. Yeah, well, it's on Friday. Lately, we've, been, we've had them every night of the week, it seems. But the book show events tend to be on Friday yeah. at 7.30. And, like, unless you're across the street from the venue, you know how it is in L.A. It's, it's getting anywhere on Friday night is yeah. not easy. Right. It's, yeah, it's so intriguing. Um, where, like, it's really important where you live in L.A., and I didn't really realize that, that, it's, that if you're like, like, if you're in Los Feliz, you're not going to Santa Monica probably for, a, for an evening of readings. It's just it's probably not going to happen unless you're reading. Yeah, it's funny because... Um, you know, the places I lived in L.A. were always on the fringes. I lived in uh, North Hollywood. I lived in Studio City. I lived in Manhattan Beach and Playa del Rey. But I always worked in the middle of the city. So I just kind of had, you know, like I was always into, you know, punk rock bands. And, like, that meant driving to Orange County. That meant driving to East County. I mean, you know, all over the place. Is this in the late 80s, early 90s? Is that and and the like early not late 90s the aughts the teens you know like like i when i started my professional life in los angeles when i lived here for about 10 years it was 96 to 2006 and i would go anywhere like and that's when i started i started vermin in 2004 but i was going to punk rock shows and i had my favorite bands and um i'd just go anywhere yeah and um so how did you like were you you're in the punk rock scene, and then you're also literary. So, wh- when did those two combine? What was the first com- was the first um, book you wrote uh, with Keith Morris, or had you written other things before that? That was kind of um, the uh, it all. It starts with uh, writing for punk rock zines, which I've done pretty much my entire adult life. And uh, I, when I was in, um, I went to grad school in Flagstaff. And uh, one of my roommates, a guy named Todd Taylor, 
and he wanted he loved flip flight flip side fanzine oh, yeah. and he wanted to to go be a volunteer and write for flip side and you know i had spent i just spent a year um working in a coffee shop in north hollywood and had a bunch of friends who were all you know starving artist types and and as la dreams go going to write for a zine is like I was like, Todd, that's a pretty attainable dream, you know. We can, I think we can make that happen for you, you know. I think all you need to do is go show up, and uh, I can put you in touch with my friends. And he did, and and then he did. He made a life for himself, you know, writing for Flipside Fanzine. Um, and then when that magazine folded, uh, he started his own magazine with another contributor, another who also was a grad school friend named Sean Carswell, and they started uh, Razor Cake Fanzine and Gorski Press Books. And um, they did that together, I think, in 2000, 2001, something like that. Yeah. So I just, I wrote uh, for, I went directly from Flipside to, to Razorkick. Yeah, um, Flipside put out some compilations, right? Because I think one of the first punk rock compilations I got was a Flipside cassette tape. Yeah, absolutely. They did, they did a whole bunch of video series. They put out Beck's first album. They did. They put out At The Drive-In's first record. So yeah, they were a little record label for a while. Uh, they did a reissue of a great Hollywood band called The Chiefs. They did a reissue of Hollywood Crisis that I love. That's one of my favorite uh, OG LA punk rock bands. And uh, uh, They did a lot of interesting things back then, but like, like a lot of zines and things that are driven by people and personalities rather than communities and organizations, you know, they, you know life happens. Um, so I was I was in I was in the San Francisco Bay Area and I was looking down on the LA scene. So I was like, not not down like my nose down, but down because I was up north. <laughs> but um, <laughs> no, seriously, because that was my exposure to punk rock at first. Because I would listen to Maximum Rock and Roll and I was listening to all these bands and that's when I heard a Black Flag, Adolescence. I was getting Flipside tapes. So Los Angeles was like my first opening to punk was like oh man it's all in LA it just that's that's when I read my damage and I was just like oh man this is what I this is the, the I wanted to know all about that because I wished I was there I always wished I was there when I was a kid yeah yeah well and, and uh, a lot of those bands was a big exchange they were constantly going up to San Francisco and those bands were coming down to uh, to, to LA quite a bit yeah you know yeah, I remember seeing the Circle Jerks, I think, in 89 or 90. And I was just like, oh, my God, I finally get to see him. It was so stoked. Yeah, well, you just mentioned uh, Keith Morris, singer of Circle Jerks. I just had breakfast with him about an hour ago. Yeah. Yeah. How's he doing today? He's doing really good. So he's got his band uh, off, a yeah. hard, hardcore band. Love off. And it's kind of like a hardcore super group. And then there's also Flag, which is former members of Black Flag and the Descendants, and they play uh, Black Flag songs. And so he's got a couple of those dates coming up. Oh, cool. He's gonna do that at Punk Rock Bowling next year. Oh, right on. And then um, uh, John Doe put out a book last year called, or sorry, a couple years ago called Under the Big Black Sun. And it was kind of like a memoir slash anthology project where it's like a, he collected a bunch of uh, L.A. punk right punks to tell their story, and while he would tell his, and uh, the, the audio book ended up winning a Grammy, 
and uh, did really well. So there's going to be a sequel called More Fun in the New World. You can see the theme that they're going with here. And uh, so Keith is has a chapter in that one. So we like we work together on that as well. And uh, so that's coming out next year. So some, some more, more Keith Morris for you. Yeah, that's great. And then um, for the audiobook, did John Doe do the voice for the audiobook? I don't. I, I think all the original authors. Oh, really? I think so. I don't know. Um, and I know Keith is excited about that because, um, for whatever reason, he didn't get to do the audio for My Damage. Oh, who did the audio for that? Do you know? Uh, a voice actor. I, I, don't, I don't recall the gentleman's name. How do you feel? How did you feel about it? Uh, a missed opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Keith is one. He Keith is. Uh, Keith grew up in Hermosa Beach, right? And so. He doesn't. If you don't know Keith Morris or anything about him, like he's one of the you know original LA punk rockers, and the LA punk rockers didn't grow up with other punk rockers. They were the first ones. So he sounds like you know like an like an LA beach burnout you know kind of guy, you know mixed with his you know his own distinctive cadence and voice and way of talking, and it's. It was one of the pleasures of working with him is like learning, you know, what he, what he sounds like and what the words he uses, and you know, uh, and no, and there's nobody who sounds like Keith Morris. So um, when you're work, so when you're working on my damage with Keith, are are you uh, do you like tape interviews with them? Is that how you do it? And then you can kind of get the vibe of what his sound is and go back and forth on drafts. Is that is that the situation? Absolutely. So. It's all of an extension of like my work with punk rock zines and doing interviews with bands when you're just when you're in the van or the dressing room and you're asking your, your questions and it's all kind of stems from that and uh, you know so I, I uh, yeah, I'm just used to taping people and recording people and transcribing what they say and um, you know I don't ever hire people to do that work that it, it feels natural to me and it's kind of part of the, my composition process. Yeah. And so I've, I've just been doing it all my life. And uh, it's kind of time where I need to upgrade my equipment. I still use a Sony mini disc recorder. Oh, <laughs> I do. And those fucking tapes are getting expensive. I, show you, I mean, they're discs. But I got I to order them from Japan now and because uh, they don't make them anymore. So, uh, yeah, it's now obsolete equipment. And uh, I need to enter the digital age. I I taped drinks with Tony on those. I got a bunch of drinks with Tony discs, and um, I, I was married at the time, so my wife was buying when she, when she would go to the record store, she would get the mini discs of you know the band she liked, like Cher and all that. So we had this little stockpile of um, essentially Betamax tapes that were just going to go nowhere. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They're tiny, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I think they're pretty cool. I don't know why they went, but I, yeah, I guess I do. The internet and the MP3 now. I, who has CDs anymore? It's crazy. Right. I was at a show uh, earlier this week, and the the very first band, like it's a brand new band, like hey, we have CDs, they're free. <laughs> wow, yeah. Because I mean, who's gonna buy it? You know, and they want people to hear it. You know. Yeah, it seems like vinyl's kind of a little more of a merchandise thing. If I, I don't know, when I go, when I've seen shows. Yeah, but in underground punk rock, it's always been the way. Yeah. It's, it's that's never ever changed. Yeah. It's since the late '70s on. You know, like. That's what you did. I mean, even Bad Religion in 19, when they were 15 years old in 1980, they knew that. Yeah. Oh yeah, we just we can make it ourselves, and we can find someone to record it and take it to the record pressing plant, and we have a record. Yeah. yeah. 
So, um, how, so for uh, my damage, how did you connect with Keith, and how was uh, how was that um, brought together to start that project? Um, that I got to know Keith through uh, the the publisher, uh, Bicapo Books, and my editor uh, um, um, Ben Schaefer at Bicapo uh, had a, re- a relationship with my agent. And they were kind of spitballing one day about, you know, who needs a book? Who, who really needs should have a book out there that doesn't? Trying to be ahead of the curve, right? And they landed on Keith Morris. And um, my agent was like, I've got the, the perfect person for you. And, and I had done an event with Keith a long, long time before I even started Vermin on the Mount. Um, uh, actually, this goes back to one of your first questions you asked me that I never got to. But how did the combination of literary and punk rock come together in Vermin yeah. on the Mount. Well, the answer to that is Joe Mino. Do you know that guy? Oh, yeah. yeah, so Chicago writer, great, fantastic writer, and he would write for Punk Planet at the time. That's right. And uh, he was coming out to do an event for a, a book when he wrote Hairstyles of the Damned. And Todd at Razor Cake, you know, knew that, you know, I had some success organizing, you know, little readings here and there, one-off things like the one I did with Keith. And uh, he said, hey, can you set up a reading uh, for Joe? And I'm like, yeah, but like, how about if we, instead of like just having Joe and like the regular crew of 20 of our, 20 of our punk friends come, what if I invite like a weird mix of people and we try to get like 40 people to come? Yeah. You know? And so that was the birth of Vermin on the Mount. Very cool. Yeah. I had Joe Mino on Drinks with Tony like over a decade ago that's crazy because i think he was on akashic too was he on akashic yes he was and I mean, he might be back on akashic i can't remember i know he had a very negative experience with uh um you know mainstream publishing he went to akashic and i think he also is doing stuff with mcsweeney's oh, okay. when, so um so when do you find out that you are uh or did you automatically have the gig and they're like, no, Jim's doing Steve's book? Or was there a situation where it was like, well, can he do it? Or we get, well, let's meet with him first. No, I had to meet with the publisher and we, we did that. And then I met, then the publisher and I and Keith met. Um, and then Keith, um, you know, he knew about the work that I'd done with zines and things like that. And the fact that I had written for Flipside, you know, all that was important to him. So, uh, I mean, Keith has a ton of integrity, and uh, so he said, let's do it. And uh, so we worked together. I spent dozens and dozens of hours in his apartment uh, here in Los Feliz, and uh, off we went. And then, um, so what's it it like, because now now you meet up with Keith, you guys are friends, but what's it like when you're first working with someone and you got to get to kind of the intimate details of their life that I, that just seems a little bit jarring for me it's like all right here we go now we're going to talk about you know your i mean I, I remember so many points of the book about him finding out about di- he had diabetes and all that just so anyway um it's it, i guess what i'm saying as, as you look at me like where the hell are you going with this <laughs> come on tony get to something it's, Check, it, please. <laughs> Check please. Check It's it feels like an intimate process. So it's almost like a relationship that you're getting into with Keith and with him. What's it like at the beginning of that? When it, I mean, it's got to feel a little weird, or no? Yeah, you. Um, Check please. 
you have to I mean you got to be a good listener you know hopefully my wife isn't well never listened to this so she's not here to she's not here now to correct me but but yeah it really uh, it really is about listening to what people say um, and being prepared to some extent to some extent I mean you don't want to be prepared like it's not like you need to go in and have questions although that is always a good help but it's it's nice to know like what has already been asked these people a million times before so that they don't immediately put you in the category of like a 15 year old zinester from a foreign country you know like so it's just that kind of thing and um, you know it's a relationship like anything else and then over time you have you know just from being in punk rock you know you know even though I got a late start to it and you know missed some important parts of it in my youth and uh, the, the Navy was not really a good uh, you know path in terms of that you end up meeting you know you have a million points of intersection with people that everybody knows everybody they've all worked together in some way or another and um, and that, but that's also just for my generation of, of punks. You know, there's like a whole, there are several other generations after me that like I'm still learning about and don't know or know very little about. So it's you know one one of those kinds of deals, right? When when you talk about um, having prepared questions, I don't have, I never have anything prepared for this. Obviously, you're looking at it because I was like, oh wait, what was your first book again? So I I don't know why I like to just go so off the cuff, but this is for for this thing. This is not for a, a book that's important, you know. Yeah, well, um, it's it's different, you know. It's um, like I kind of had to audition with all of the uh, members of Bad Religion. It wasn't called that, but you know, I had to meet with them and those other people to all say, is Jim cool? Yeah, Jim's cool. Let's, let's, let's do this. So, um, and I remember when I met with, Brian Baker was the first person I met with because I just happened to be in D.C. When, when we got the green light to go ahead with this project and put a book proposal together. And, uh, and he was living in D.C. at the time and we met up and I was like, I was really nervous. It's like, I was like, wow, this is so cool. <laughs> And then, uh, did, when you get to the when you get to the meeting, how do you get through those nerves? Oh, just just listen and like you like you. I always look for points of you know things that we have in common. Um, you know, and usually it has to do with music and different people. For and for me, it was easy because I was like, when we met in D.C. I just said, yeah, I grew up in Falls Church, Virginia, and we, I went to this school. And they're like, oh yeah, those people were dicks. Yeah, they were. You know, that kind of thing. You know, so. Because they're really kind of putting their lives in your hands because you're documenting something. You're documenting bad religion that's going to be on bookshelves everywhere. So it's kind of a big thing that's going to be forever out there where people who might even not know the music, they're going to read, they may read the book and that's, that's them. That's their identity. Yeah, well, I just put like a lot of pressure on you. Yeah, thanks. I'm going to go into a, into a, a writer's block hole right now. No, I mean, um, that part of the, uh, I, I was actually uh, talking about this the other day with, uh, with Todd, as razor cake is that, you know, I'm writing this book for the fans and the people who may not know the story, but I'm constantly doing more interviews and follow up questions with people go, go back and revisiting old things and just like listening and listening and listening. And, so I'm I'm doing that, and now I have I literally have 
their voices in my head and realizing like, oh, what are they going to think about reading this? And it's like, it's the kiss of death. And, um, but it's hard not to do that when you're listening to them speak. And uh, so I just have to get out of my own way. And it's really funny. It's like what you said to me about, oh, I love this song, this album, but then, uh, then I moved on. That's everyone's experience with the band. Is it? Yeah. And nobody knows the whole story. And so I don't feel like I have to be some kind of you know, punk rock wizard and come up with a way to make this band interesting and engaging because, because nobody, it's, it's a good story and few people know it. And um, so is this project, this, is act, this would actually be a, like a, um, a biography written by you since it's, since it's the whole band? Is that how it works? Yeah, and it, it, but it's, it's, uh, it's in my voice, but like I don't, you know, it's in a, a narrative voice, not my personal, never goes into first person. I don't enter into the story at all. Um, but I use their words as much as possible. And working on Keith's book was completely different because that was in first person. So that's really have to dial. That's dialing in on what his narrative would be if he was doing the book from front to front to back. I guess. Right, and that one I really lean heavily on the interviews. And I think when all was said and done, I think I transcribed about a, a hundred and sixty-nine thousand words of interviews with Keith, which is a lot because Keith also tends to repeat himself. And uh, but even when he's telling things that really he goes on a tangent that may not serve the story that you're, I may have been trying to like find out factually information about the things that he's saying and the way he's saying you know help shape, help give the book its shape. Yeah, the, I like what you said about having to transcribe your own work because I I used to do music coverage and more author coverage and for the San Francisco Chronicle, and I did everything the hardest worst way um, where I'd get an hour and a half of tape I'd have to transcribe the whole thing in order to dissect it to my 600 words but that was just my weird process I feel like I needed to have my hands on top of all of that yeah like when I do a a taped interview of something that I know is going to be 400 600 words um, I tape it but I don't transcribe it I just like listen to it again and then stop and write notes and um, but for something like this I, I it's all very, it's important to me, and I want a record of everything, and I mean, I, I proofread the tapes, you know, not just my manuscript, but I want everything as accurate as possible. Um, so, when, so back to my damage, when you're working with Keith, do you give him pieces of the book, or do you give him the complete product at the end to go over? I gave him the complete product at the end, and, uh, and, it, and it's funny, like, you know, Keith Ellick has a... I'm not giving anything away when I say he repeats himself and has kind of a circular way of talking. And, and if you've ever been to one of his shows, like he, he can go on a rant, yeah. uh, you know, mid show. Oh yeah. He, you know, he, he's a talker. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's kind of nice though. If you're like jumping around in the pit and you're like, Oh cool. Keith's going to talk for a while and you just relax. It's like a middle-aged man break. Right. It totally is. But uh, Keith's commitment to the book was exceptional. He read the complete manuscript at least three times. Had comments that we went that we went over in person. Then sometimes those sessions would take hours, and it was fantastic. He was he caught things that even the proofreaders didn't catch. So it was a really great process, and 
you know, I would I would jump at the opportunity to work with Keith again, and and we do have a couple of other things that we're um, cooking up. Good, good. Yeah, I you know, I mean, I I get a little skeptical about like rock. I can usually care less about rock biographies or even if it's a punk rock. And I was like, all right, and I got my damage. And I'm like, I read the shit out of that. I was like. Damn, you know he's talking about Red Cross, though, and he's talking and just every it, it got into it so well that I, I read it. I just read it front to back, and I was like, it was exciting for me to know what was going on in L.A. at that time when I was a little fanboy in the San Francisco Bay Area. I kind of felt like, oh, I have a little more knowledge of it, and I, I and I still go, damn, I wish I was down here in those years. Yeah, I, I really am a big believer in context, and I think that. Like when you read an, a band interview, uh, that's what you don't get, right? You know, because you got like four people in a van or in a room talking and they're telling you their story and it's intriguing and interesting and maybe it's it gets you to check out their music in the end, which is really maybe the only thing, you know, mission accomplished, right? But for a book, you want more. You want context. You want to know like what, who else was playing. And, um, and it's just kind of like amazing to think about all these like, titans of punk rock that we put up on this pedestal are all just these kids who knew each other and were just playing together and they and the reason that why they did it is because they were like kind of had their shit together and kind of were more reliable than other people who just kind of flamed out you know i remember when off got together and i was i was like oh my god because they got um Steve from Red Cross and I was just like oh I, I just could not wait for them to come to San Francisco when they were in San Francisco I was at like every show I could get to when I go to off shows I, I focus on Steve yeah because uh, he has he, he's such an amazingly talented musician and and he also is like I mean young Keith got into punk a little bit late you know and he was in his 20s right when he was in Black Flag so by the time Circle Jerks came along, he's in his mid-twenties. Um, you know, Steve was in Red Cross when he was 13, you know, right? Maybe even younger. But so he's still a fairly young guy, you know? And uh, so he has a lot of energy and he's, you know, you know, it's it's funny. There's something Brett Gerwitz said to me the other day about like, you know, it's, you know, he loves hardcore, um, but it's really not that hard. And if you've been doing it for a while, you should be really good at it. Um, it's when young people embrace it and are really good at it, then it's special. And, and there's some truth to that, you know. So, um, so when you have someone who can do more than one thing and can, has a lot of fun and is just engaging to watch, that, that's, you know, Steve McDonald yeah. for sure. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm a, I'll be in San Francisco next week. I, was, I'm gonna, I already bought my Red Cross ticket when they're playing up there, so I'm excited for that. <laughs> Yeah. That's kind of a college. I did college radio, so okay. that's kind of all the 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 KFJC DJs get together when a Red Cross show happens because we all used to go see them when we were in college radio. That's outstanding. Yeah, there. It's weird how like bands are really big in certain places. Red Cross is big in Spain. Really? Yeah. Yeah. So they go to Spain every year. Yeah. Or every almost every year or something like that. You yeah. Know? That's great. When um. And you wrote your oh man, and my brain just went blank. I forgot the title of your novel again. But you, the, let's talk about your novel and when the, when that came out. When when did you um, when did you start working on the novel? And and please remind me of the title so yeah, everyone. Okay. No, it's called Forest of Fortune, yeah. okay. and uh, it's set in an Indian casino, 
And uh, the reason why they came about is because I found myself working in one. Um, when I left Los Angeles in 2006, I moved to San Diego to get married to my wife, and that's where I still live and still married. And, uh, but I, didn't, I needed a job, and so I found a job on Craigslist at an Indian casino. And I worked there for about five years, and it was a pretty fascinating thing. Like Before I got done with my three-day orientation, I was like, oh, hell, I'm going to write about this place. Really? Oh, yeah. It's just, it's just, it was just too interesting, the collision of cultures between uh, you know, the gaming culture and casino culture and, and the tribal enterprise. It was just a, just a really fascinating thing to me. And uh, I, uh, I'm a um, recovering alcoholic. And when I first went to the, when I first started this job, I was very much, you know, a partier. But in the middle of it, I, I got sober. And um, so I spent half of my time at the casino, like partying, and the other half decidedly not. And it was really interesting because I had written this draft of a novel, pieced together like in the party stage. And then I revised it when I was, and put put it back together and made sense when I was sober, yeah. and um, and it's set in an Indian, a fictional Indian casino in San Diego, and it involves a, uh, um, you know, a Native American woman who works at the casino, uh, a Latina who's a gambling addict, and a uh, Caucasian copywriter with a serious drug and alcohol problem. <clears throat> So a little bit of autobiographical stuff in there, and uh, yeah, it's just called a Forest of Fortune, and it it's definitely a, a circling the drain kind of novel with a little bit of crime and supernatural stuff thrown in. I can't wait to read it. I've <laughs> it sounds great. Thank you. Yeah. Wait, when did that come out? Ah, uh, shit, 2014, okay. I think. Yeah, yeah, I think so. That's oh, that was I think that was the year I was in LA. That's when I first came down here. Yeah, and then the paperback came out the following year, and then uh, it was put out by Tyrus Books, uh, independent press. But then they got bought out, and then the company that bought them got bought out, and that was Simon and Schuster, and they ended up liquidating Tyrus Books. So uh, Tyrus Books doesn't exist anymore. Technically, it's a Simon and Schuster book, I guess. So. You, it's, uh, at least it's still out. It's available, yeah. yeah. Oh, so was, when when did you um, when did you realize that you needed to get sober? What, what was was there a the point in time where you're just like, ah, okay, this is too much, or I'm, or how did it work for you? Well, I mean, I knew when I was in the Navy that I had a problem, yeah. and so did the Navy. They knew I had a problem, and I got a, I got in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Um, there was kind of a clash of interests there, and um, so. For a lot of my life, it was kind of trying to regulate, you know, back and forth, you know, like, oh, I need to cut back. Oh, I need to stop. Oh, I need to cut this shit out. And, you know, and then, you know, you know, something terrible would happen and things would be good and then some things would be bad and that whole thing. And uh, but in 2009, uh, I'm coming up on uh, 10 years I think, yeah, in, two, in early 2009, uh, a close friend uh, overdosed. And that was the catalyst for me to 
you know, face my truth and realize just how recklessly I was living my life. And that, you know, there were so many good things in my life I didn't want to lose. And so I, that's when I stopped. And were you also, you were married at the time as well, yeah? Yeah, I was newly married. Um, and I just, I, I wanted to be a good husband, a good father, good, I, I didn't want to get fired. So I, a lot of the things that happened to a lot of, you know, when people bottom out, uh, I'm a high bottom in the sense that I did not, I didn't lose everything. I didn't, you know, I still had everything before I quit, but, uh, you know, I was also, you know, 40 years old and, and kind of at the end of my run. And, and at the same time, I think uh, you're, you're also an author, so you're observing and, and you can see, you can really take notice what's happening in the kind of full picture. But maybe that, you know, people who aren't writers may not be as observant of, uh, of that. I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, yes, absolutely. It's funny, there's, I would write, uh, I would do, I'm a big believer in New Year's resolutions. And uh, one of the things I would do is like, okay, so like, it's great to have a, here's your goal. You know, I want to go to Fiji next year. And it's like, well, what are the steps you can take to do that? Like, what are the, and what, more importantly, what are the obstacles? So I would make those steps part of my New Year's resolution process. And it was like, no matter what my resolution was, like, I'm going to save money, I'm going to travel, I'm going to finish a novel, I'm going to lose weight. It's like the obstacle is always alcohol. You know, like maybe you shouldn't drink so much. Maybe this thing shouldn't, you shouldn't be so preoccupied with this thing. That So it was there in front of me. It was just a willingness to do something about it and my disease convincing me that it was manageable. But, um, you know, I mean, I'm not one of these, you know, art can save you kind of things, but... Um, you know, I would go to these meetings and see other people who are in desperate situations who, who didn't have art. They just had their destroyed lives and like trying to make sense of them. And I just like, how do they do it? You know, how do you do it? So, I mean, for me, art was a true salvation and I had something to kind of, you know, pour myself into and, you know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, books saved my life like literally from coming out of a cult religion and trying to figure out the world is when I connected with writers that I couldn't really be a, a, I couldn't hang out with these people but I can read their work and, and then it connected and I had friends killing themselves because they were being shunned by the Jehovah's Witnesses so there was a lot of suicide and I was like going I think that's my next way out but when I found when I found books and then I found that other people had, I was like, oh, wait a second. They have these feelings too. All oh, these feelings are okay. And um, yeah, I'm, I feel like I'm lucky to be here today because I, I was in those library stacks every night of the week when I figured out I can read things other than Bible literature. You know? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in our culture, readers are, you know, if you're a young person, unless you're reading, I shouldn't make a generalization, but like I definitely felt like an outcast for being a reader and and you know, gravitating to punk was a way to hear the misfits that I'm going to hang out with, kind of a thing. Granted, there's a lot of self-destructive misfits in that community, and um, it's kind of fun being in it now. Now I feel like we're in the community of like weirdo writers, and we can. It's and we're all like kind of middle-aged, and you know, my fr I got friends in you know in their 60s and 70s, and it's just like. 
but we're all still have that misfit quality about us. And that's I just, I'm like, this is the only group I feel normal in. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's kind of cool, you know, being middle-aged and that you are able to like, you don't really care about fitting in, you know, um, you don't care about like, do you have the right shoes? You know, you're not trying, you're not, you're the focus of your life. Isn't like, how you're ever going to have sex or if you're ever going to have it again, you know, those kinds of things. <laughs> well, I'm divorced and dating right now, and that's just, that's on my mind a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't know what to say. You know, I just uh, I'm I'm so glad I never had to navigate the dating apps and things like that. I, I have friends who are divorced and tell me and I'm kind of fascinated about it. And I've, I've, I've even like stolen some of what they've said um and put it in a put it in a novel that that i'm shopping right now cool. that's what i was going to ask you next if you're working on something so you have something completed that you're yeah i have a a short story collection and a novel that are kind of that are that i'm i'm shopping the novel the collection i'm just kind of sitting on as i'm kind of tink, still tinkering with a lot of my own work is taken a back burner this year uh, while I've been working on the Bad Religion book. You know. uh, and do you, do you feel like working uh, on other people's narratives kind of uh, kind of feeds into like your work as a writer when you're working on your own things? Yes, absolutely. And uh, I mean, I, I love travel. I love meeting people. And and, and this is this is great because you know I come to LA for a week. I have a bunch of meetings. I'm out and about. I'm going to shows. I'm doing all this stuff. And uh, living my best life man he said sarcastically but then then i get home and my goal is to like you know not shower not get out of my bathrobe not leave my house you know and uh i'm being somewhat facetious but but no i mean it's 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 kind of a nice thing i can you know i can do both things that's interesting because i i've i've known like directors who like to not live in la because when they come here they can stack all their meetings and they tend to work harder than, if, than when they're here. I, I don't know if that's the case with you. Well, I have a, a lot of friends from when I lived here. A lot of creative people. All the Razor Cake headquarters are here. Oh, I keep forgetting you have more connection with Yeah, so I, I um, you know, and like I've always, I've also like, you know, I'm, I'm 50 years old, but if you've got like a patch of floor and a sleeping bag or a creaky futon, I'll take it. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not that that pampered yet. I, I, can, I can still I, for actually uh, when we were working on my damage, we had an opportunity. Uh, it was a really hot summer, so we would meet in these offices that um, were that used to be the LA Music Conservatory that was run by Fleet, uh, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and the place was managed um, by. Uh, Pete Weiss of Thelonious Monster. So oh, wow. when they were they were vacating the building so they could renovate it, but it it stalled. So you know they were he was managing this empty building and so he let Keith use it for our meetings. Yeah. And so we would go in there, we'd enjoy the air conditioning, yeah. do our meetings, and sometimes we'd be we'd be in an office that like KK Barrett uh, of the Screamers had oh, used for like his film work, and it was just. 
at the end of the meeting, Keith would go and I would be like, all right, I'm going to take some notes. But like really what I was doing was sleeping on the floor, you know, <laughs> be like free hotel. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What was, um, what were some of the first writers where you went, oh man, this, this is, this is something that I need to do with my life. Um, what ba- you read? um that, that's a huge question. I know that's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well I was like a big, you know, literature with a capital L you know, I wanted. I thought I was going to be a joy scholar. That's what I thought I was going to do with my life really? when I got done with my undergraduate. Yeah. And then um, I just, I literally just started reading Ulysses. I'm like on page fifty. <laughs> only the finest uh, modernist novel. Yeah. Well, I shouldn't say that, but um, but yeah, it's my desert island book. Uh-huh. Again, I was raised Roman Catholic in an Irish American household. Yeah. Uh, I grew up doing Irish dance and playing Irish music. So I'm kind of, it's kind of, I'm the right audience for it, you know, you know. And um, so anyway, yeah, I I love Joyce, you know, I love, you know, Pynchon, you know, I love Virginia Woolf, you know, I I love all that, you know, the the real arty shit, right? And then I I graduated and I didn't really have any sense of like, I'm going to move to California. I'm going to get a residency there and then I'm going to go to grad school and I'll be a a James Joyce scholar. And then I got to California and I realized like, holy shit, these schools are expensive and hard to get into. And uh, I don't know if I can cut it. And so when I was in, I was working at a coffee shop and uh, I somehow found my way to Flagstaff, Arizona and working, uh, going to school at NAU. And it was during that year I was working in LA that I was just consuming uh, crime novels and pulp novels and things like that. And that's when I feel like I really started to, to get how my path as a writer, because I loved all these high modernist works of art, but I didn't know how to write. I didn't know the first thing about it. And even my papers were terrible. So, um, but then I would read like Jim Thompson and be like story, character, plot, action, and style, which was when you're 25 is the most important thing, right? As a, it was like it had everything. So like I just consumed those, and that kind of informed my sensibilities. And a lot of those books were put out by Black Lizard, and they were reissues of crime novels and pulp novels of the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and. Um, and so Barry Gifford wrote Wild at Heart and the whole uh, Sailor and Lula sequence. And uh, so I found his work, and his work became hugely influential on mine, especially like the way he writes things in very short, episodic uh, chapters. They're like little vignettes. So just be like two or three pages, dense with information, and then some kind of like shocking violence or, or realization um, at the end. And then you kind of hopscotch into the forward in time or place or someone else's consciousness. And that, that was like, that's what I want to do. Hey, Jim, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. It's been a blast. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening. That was author Jim Rulin. And here is segment two of my interview with Marky Ramon from the archives of Drinks with Tony. So we're at Skylight Books with Marky Ramon, the author of um, Punk Rock Blitz. I always mess that up. <laughs> it's uh, well, let's start again. Okay, 
<laughs> Go ahead. It's Blick, Blitzkrieg. It's not Blitzkrieg Bop. I know Blitzkrieg Bop. I but I always whenever whenever Monster I see Blitzkrieg. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> We're here at uh, Sun, at Skylight Books in Los Angeles with Marky Ramone. His book, Punk Rock Blitz Blitz. <laughs> You know, why don't you look at the book while he's saying it? So you know <laughs> All right. If I don't, I'll do it after. Uh, we're here at uh, okay. yeah. we're here at Skylight Books in Los Angeles talking with Marky Ramone, the author of Punk Rock Blitzkrieg. I'll hold it up for you. Yeah. Why can't I say it? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll hold it up for you. Okay. And then I can do it outside after. <laughs> this one doesn't work. Um, hey, we're... We're at Skylight Books in Los Angeles, and we're talking with Marky Ramone. His book is Punk Rock Blitzkrieg, My Life as a Ramone. Hi, Marky. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm doing better now. Hey, how you doing? Yeah, what's up? Um, it's, uh, I before E, uh, I think uh, after I-N-G. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's the name of the book, uh, Punk Rock Blitzkrieg, My Life as a Ramone, by uh, yours truly. And... Um, How's the book tour been going? Uh, you've had, this is how the success. What this? Yeah, the, uh, it's the fourth one I've done. Great. I'm very grateful that people are uh, really liking it. It's number one on Amazon for the second week for uh, autobiographies. Uh, you know, rock musicians uh, in the punk genre and the rock genre. So uh, it eclipsed all the other books already. So I'm very happy about that because I I thought it was definitely the right time to get this book out now to stop all the rumors and you know uh, 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 that were in the other books that really weren't written by Ramon you know so you know that that was important to me to quell all those ridiculous exaggerations you know so you know it's better to to, to uh, I always thought that it was better to read a book by a band member than a family member or a uh, you know, uh, uh, an outsider, let's say, you know. Yeah, I mean, you're, you were on tour with them. You're, you're in the Ramones. You're day after day. It's, almost, it's beyond family almost. Well, we were closer than family. Um, you're 15 years in the uh, band and then playing 1,700 shows. It's a lot. So you become closer than family. They were my brothers. They were my bandmates. And they were my business associates. And uh, they're all gone. They're not alive anymore, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, uh, somebody has to keep the flame going, you know? Yeah, the, the, flame, the flame is strong. I mean, as far as I'm concerned from my experience as a fan. Um, what was it like um, reliving some of these moments and having to really dig back into your memory for that? Oh, that was simple. I mean, uh, a lot of the stuff I did w w was so extreme that you don't forget. Mm -hmm. And I had composition notebooks with me. I had uh, I always carried a camera with me everywhere I went. Video camera. I had the largest Ramones video library in the world. I own all the master tapes. And uh, if my memory doesn't serve me correctly, I, I always go back to those things. So uh, that... Uh, that was kind of like a uh, my crutch, you know, if I ever got, got caught in any kind of quagmire, you know. Did um, when you were like writing and documenting, did you realize how big the Ramones would get and how big every, you know, as it as you were progressing? 
No, we just wound up. We just played. We just played the music we liked. We never. Th- I never thought about how big we would be. Uh, you got to. St- you got to start that first. You know what I mean? You can't. Th- you got to think. Of, think about that stuff later. You know, you're on a road. You're on a mission. You just want to play the music you love, and that's what we did. Tommy, after three and a half years, left the band, and then asked me to join the band with Didi Ramon, and then uh, I stayed with them for 15 years. So there's a lot to tell in this book, you know, a lot. It's 400 pages. It's the most comprehensive book about the band, and it's not fluff. It's it's you know really really heavy stuff in there, you know, uh, and uh, that's the result. Yeah. Um, okay. Then I had a, then he had a brain fart. I can edit that out. Uh, <laughs> oh, we were talking about the. Um, you were just saying, okay, the the getting out of the fluff, and I was like, ah, and then it went away. Darn it. Okay. <laughs> oh, um, how can I lose it like that? It just it's a senior it's, moment. You know, it's oh. life, right? <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, um. So was there anything when you were writing it that you were surprised that when it came back to your memory and it was like a vivid, uh, oh man, that happened? Well, uh, a lot a lot of my rehab things and uh, stuff when, when I got sober are in there. And, you know, when in life, as it progresses, you, you want to forget about things like that, but I, I will never forget so there, there was a time uh, there were there were things in there that came back to memory that I did insert in the book about getting sober, what it was like, the rehabs, how much time it took, what I had to do in order in order to maintain that, and what I was advised to do. I mean, uh, uh, during the Ramones and after Ramones, I had a lot of money uh, for the five years five years I was in the group. I didn't have to do anything when I was asked to lead the group for four years. So uh, I chose jobs that were physical to do to maintain my uh, drumming and my physical uh, abilities. So I took jobs as construction work. I did uh, demolition work. I uh, put up wrought iron gates and crack houses in New York City uh, and uh, mixing cement in 95 degree weather and wheelbarrows but it, it, it helped me physically, you know, I loved it. And, um, you know, uh, the whole idea of getting sober is to be physically active because sometimes, you know, in drinking beer and stuff, you just sit on your ass and you don't do anything. So uh, I always made sure that I was physical so I wouldn't put on weight and, uh, you know, lose uh, any kind of uh, physical uh, muscle tone. And when uh, when you were recruited to the Ramones, or you were brought to uh, when they brought you over, um, they they had an interview with you, which I really loved in the book. Um, the when you when you were when it was first brought, um, when you were brought to the audition. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Do you remember the um, the, uh, the, uh, the 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 interview? <laughs> Well, it wasn't an interview. Uh, we all knew each other. I was. Oh, right, right, right. We, they came to see my bands when they weren't even in the Ramones. I did five albums before the Ramones, and they used to see my groups with me in them play. 
And uh, when Tommy left, he suggested to Didi, if he saw me at CBGB's, to ask me if I wanted to join the band, because Tommy recommended me. And then we had a three-song rehearsal. That was it. There was I Don't Care, Sheena is a Punk Rocker, and Blitzkrieg Bop. And, uh, and, you know, all those songs were on the jukebox at CBGB's anyway. I knew them. But uh, it was me, Tommy, and Johnny, Joey, and Dee, Dee in the same room. And we just uh, went over the songs and it worked out fine. Then they gave me uh, a cassette of the first album that I recorded with them with I Want to Be Sedated on it called Road to Ruin. And then uh, their live show, I had to learn 40, 40 songs in two weeks. Yeah. Did it, though. Yeah, yeah. And before... Um I, I know the lead time on the uh, from the book to actual publication takes forever. So, it's, um, but yeah. um, they they had pretty much the you have to have the Ramones look. That was the uh, yeah. Well, I mean, is it like the Beatles? You have a certain kind of requirement, uh, and I already had the look down with the bands that I was in with um, uh, the first heavy metal band, one of the first heavy metal bands in Dust. And Richard Hell in the Vaudoids when we were together in that band. So uh, in Brooklyn, growing up in Brooklyn, it's a very rough neighborhood. It's like uh, England's Liverpool, very coastal. You know, a lot of docks, a lot of ships, workers coming in and out of the ports, and you know, uh, you got to dress in co there's a, a certain code. So that's jeans, leather jackets, and sneakers. So. You could picture me as the Fonz, <laughs> you know, the, the Fonz look in Brooklyn, New York in my early teens and mid-teens, you know. That's what was happening at the time, you know. A lot of a lot of the 50s guys and early 60s guys didn't like the, the long-haired look and all that other stuff. And, you know, they were called greasers and hitters. But uh, there was a whole new generation coming aboard, you know. There was uh, the love peace thing and everything like that. You know, I wasn't a greaser, I wasn't a hippie, but I was uh, a music lover. So, uh, you know, I, I tend to wanted to uh, emulate kind of like the British look, you know, uh, which I loved, uh, those British bands. They always looked the coolest, they played the best, and uh, that, that's what I was influenced by. And I loved um, when uh, you were with uh, Richard Hell when you went to... Uh, England to yeah. play and the Ramones played uh, if I re if I remember right from the book, and um, so it, so that the comparing of Liverpool and Brooklyn that that's an interesting uh, comparison. Yeah, uh, I toured with the Clash with Richard Hell and the Vaudoids. We did a four and a half week tour, and I got to know the Clash very well. Joe Strum, unfortunately, he's not with us, but I gave him his first pair of Converse sneakers. They didn't really have them there. They didn't have them there. They had English sneakers, and I and I wanted the English sneakers. Uh -huh. So everybody wants what everybody else has, you know. But um, yeah, it 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 is a tough borough, Brooklyn. And uh, the Ramones went over there in 1976 while Tommy was still in the group, and helped ignite the uh, British punk scene. Yeah. They loved the Ramones. I mean, they they definitely loved the Ramones and Richard Hell and the Dolls. And they definitely copied a lot of uh, what we were doing at CBGB's. Yeah. Yeah, um, and just being just um, the oper you know, the opportunity to be at that place at that time in history is just, just to, um, you know, being born at a certain time and having that circle of people that you can connect with 
and make come become something that we're all very interested in later. It's just so amazing. So uh, it was definitely uh, a great time. Uh, we'll never see it again, but it was a great time and uh, a lot of great music out of there done by real uh, players, not samples and computers. It was all from the heart and uh, from our minds, you know. So uh, it was organic. It wasn't, uh, you know, a sample or a tape. And uh, well, that was probably one of the last great American musical scenes besides grunge. So uh, obviously the, the punk scene's more popular all over the world. But then you had the grunge scene in Seattle. And, uh, you know, that was basically the last time any big kind of thing, uh, you know, was, uh, was a scene. In New York, uh, that was a scene at CBGB's and Max's. Uh, will it ever come around again? I doubt it. But, uh, you know, that's why a lot of groups should just get together and create their own scenes, you know, and, and uh, go out more and, and meet other band members and uh, become friends and, you know, and talk about music and meet other musicians and, and uh, start a whole new musical revolu revolution. So that 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 can eventually happen again, you know. I'm I'm keeping my fingers crossed, you know. Yeah, that was the fun part. I was at college radio when when it was just turntables, and me and my DJ friends would just sit in the bottom studio and just listen to whole record sides and yeah, yeah, just play the vinyl and have a few beers. That's what I that's what I do with doing my time off is just lay back, chill out, and just put on the vinyls and blast away yeah. with a 500 watt system <laughs> in my uh, one of my uh, listen my, one of my listening room uh, I had a 500 watt system Macintosh and I had four uh, 15 inch Sherwin Vega three-way speakers so you had a 15 inch woofer on each four of them with a five inch uh, mid-range and a two two inch tweeter so you had i stacked them and they were about i would say seven feet high in each side <laughs> and i would just shake shake the, the walls it was so loud it broke the glass in one of my cabinets <laughs> and uh you know i mean luckily I, I i still hear good you know yeah yeah but um uh, that's what i used to do <laughs> you know and also um you know, as time went on, you made a lot of money, but in the very beginning, um, things were really tight. In the beginning, I had nothing. Uh, I was playing, and, uh, you know, I was just trying to gain experience. And, uh, you know, you have, to, uh, you have to meet people, you have to go out, you have to hang out, you have to do, you have to meet other musicians, and you have to rehearse, and any money I did have, that went to all that. So I lived in a basement apartment in a four-story walk-up, which were which had concrete floors, no heat, no hot water, and um, I, uh, in order to eat, uh, my <laughs> my friend had a dog upstairs, and uh, he was moving out of the building, and uh, he kept he left the food behind, and I started cooking and eating dog food. Uh, but it tasted pretty good. <laughs> you put a little salt and pepper on it, and you fry it up, and it's okay. 
But uh, I used to wait also to four or five in the morning when the delivery trucks would come by to grocery stores and bakeries, and I would I would take bags of food with uh, a bag over my shoulder with my bike, and then uh, dr- uh, ride back to my apartment and then just go right inside and start eat, you know eating what I took. Any everything ranged from bagels, bread, uh, strawberry pie, uh, to uh, 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 long things of salami and uh, you know milk, uh, morning food. You know, like when people just uh, starting to get up and they want their breakfast food. You know, but I got there at the right times in certain stores. And uh, you know, back then they had the gates that you could insert your hand through and take the stuff out. You know, uh, you know, it's not like you know now where you know they'll take the whole store. <laughs> I, I just wanted to eat that's all yeah, you yeah. know so I went through all, all that stuff and in order to get in and out of my door I had to use a padlock not a key you know there's no it wasn't a, a, a lock in the door so in order to lock my door I needed to use a padlock and underneath the windows was where all the people threw their garbage so a lot of the times I'd look out the window and there were rats hanging out just eating all the garbage up you know and um uh, they uh, they didn't scare me. They they didn't even move. They would ju- they would just stare at you, you know. That that's how bold they were, you know. So that's what I went through. So uh, then things got better. Yeah. So the rats were kind of emulating the whole kind of vibe of the neighborhood at the time as well, or. Well, uh, you know, rats are everywhere. I mean, yeah. uh, if they smell food and it's dark, no one sees them. They'll they'll start munching away. You know. Yeah. yeah. They they can eat anything. But if it's readily available, that's easier for them, yeah. you know. And and how is it being um, being on book tour now instead of you know, band tour? It's, it has to be complete. Well, you're not moving as much, obviously. You're you're meeting your fans up close, which is great. And uh, it's uh, it's a line of people, and uh, you talk a little bit. And uh, I'm just grateful to hear the wonderful cool comments about how much they loved Richard Hell and the Voidoids, Dust, Costa Ramones, and so uh, it, it, you're, you're a foot or two feet away from them, and uh, it's like we're, we're friends or something, we're all friends, you know, so, you know, that, that that's pretty cool, yeah. you know. Are you still in touch with uh, Richard Hell, or do you... Uh, with- no, not really, uh, you know, I got, I, I got so much on the plate, I don't have time to do anything. Yeah. I mean, I'm lucky if I even see my mother on a on a weekly basis. Uh, but um, you know, I tour. I have my own food companies. I got the, now the book is out. I have my own radio show on Sirius XM, and I don't like to repeat shows. I like to make sure that everything's fresh. So I got I I do that, and then uh, you know what else? What uh, whatever else happens is just downtime. Yeah. You know, where I can just have a sigh of relief. And, uh, but what I do is fun. And as long as it's fun, I'll continue doing it. Like when I tour the world uh, and I play these wonderful songs, 36 classic Ramon songs to the whole new generation. We retired in 96. It's 1995. Now that uh, there's a whole new generation of Ramones fans, they're 18, 19 years old, and they can go out now. <laughs> So uh, I'm able to continue playing this music very well. So uh, I have Andrew WK as my lead singer. 
he's outrageous. <laughs> he's one party animal boy. I love him. And uh, like in New York the other night, it was great. You know, I, I couldn't have asked. There was a sold out show in the heart of New York City at the Gramercy Theater, and it just proves that there is a whole new generation. And Imix younger generation, they mix with the older generation, it definitely bridges the generation gap, yeah. you know? So uh, very grateful for that. And uh, for the um, for the um, appearance tonight, Tom Kenny's interviewing yeah. you. How, how are you, how do you know him? Well, he's a big Ramones fan, I, I'm a fan of his, and a, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Karen Marmont, uh, introduced us and we hit it off, you know. So uh, asked him to do this, and he and he wa and he was able to do it, and because he's he's busy too, so uh, he he's knowledgeable about what to ask, and that that's important. So it was great having him on board, you know. And, and what what a great guy, you know. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. Uh, I have new writing workshops happening in January on campus at UCLA Extension, as well as online. Go to www.tonyduchesne.com for more information on that and to sign up. And next week on Drinks with Tony, we have author and photographer Scott Southern and author Andre. Andre, <laughs> did I blow this? Oh, Andre, yeah, Andre Dabuse, Dabuse, the third. Uh, what did he write? The House of Sand and Fog and so many other great books. So listen and enjoy, and thanks for listening to the show this week. Have a wonderful Wednesday or whatever day you listen to this.